Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon, and my special guest today is Chris Riley. Chris started his career at EMC, where he eventually became regional vice president. After EMC, Chris moved to ComDisco and then to CenterPath before joining McData as the VP and general manager of the Americas. After three years at McData, Chris moved to Gryphon and then to HP's storage division as the vice president of the Americas. After six years at HP, Chris moved to Dell EMC for six years as the president of the Americas. Then Chris became the chief revenue officer at Automation Anywhere. And today, Chris is the president of Worldwide Operations at Data Robot. Welcome, Chris. Hey, yeah, how are you, bud? I'm doing great, John. How are you? Good. You're looking good today. Looking fantastic. How are you? Great to be here. <laughs> so maybe you start just by telling us a little bit about what Data Robot does and where it's applicable. Yeah, well, I think um, the world's been taken by storm by generative AI. So uh, good news is everyone's somewhat familiar with the AI space, but, but Data Robot's been around for 10 years. It's a leader in the AI machine learning space, you know, for predictive analytics. We've got a good portion of the Fortune 500 large enterprise accounts that are using our technology to find those corner cases where they can run their business more efficiently, more effectively, lower churn, uh, increase, you know, output. Um, and it's, it's a world class platform. It's a SaaS platform. Uh, and again, we're leaders in the space. We've now incorporated generative AI okay. into our platform, which will give our customers another extension of um, AI capabilities from the platform and the investment that they've already made. And when you think about maybe the top, is there a top two or three like use cases that, you know, like almost every large company needs data robot for? Yeah, um, I'd say customer loyalty, customer churn, predictive analytics on what's happening in that area, which as you know, is, is, is critical, right? Who might churn because of a service event or bad customer experience. And in the second would be, you know, higher yield on inventory and inventory management. So we went through this chip shortage over the last several years, right? Many of our customers are in that deal and looked at, you know, ways in which to you know, improve uh, the overall yield, the inventory tied to margin, tied to revenue. So data robots not only giving them really good insights, but it sounds like it's actually prompting them saying, based upon some leading indicators, we think that this is going to happen inside this use case like churn. Exactly. Our financial services is our largest, you know, uh, vertical segment, but we're in manufacturing, um, you know, from transportation, uh, to healthcare and all see benefits across, you know, each aspect of their business, some horizontal use cases and some vertical. 
Yeah. Good. Well, Chris, you've had to step into many leadership roles along the, along the way after reading your, your resume. And when you, when you step in and you think back, I step in on day one, you know, as a sales leader or as, you know, president of, you know, of worldwide operations. What are some of the top three to five things that you're looking to learn about, you know, your organization or the sales organization? Well, that's a great question, John. As you, as you look back on your career and you realize, what, what could I use some advice on and, and where did I fail? Because I think out of failure comes, you know, uh, a level of improved EQ and, and humbleness because we're not used to failing, right? As, as, as you know. But I see my best learning experience is when I went from EMC to ComDisco. And what I learned is all the things that worked at EMC might not work in ComDisco. And they had their own culture and their own success. And what I should have done is taken the first 30 days to really understand their processes and their methodologies and their culture and what good looks like in their world, both in sales management and first line sales management, and then sprinkled in a little bit of, you know, all the great things I learned while at EMC to build upon their culture, but maybe give it a boost to help improve, improve productivity. Yeah. Well, that happens a lot with first time leaders that move from one company to another. They think, well, it worked over at, you know, company A, so it should work at company B. And then they try to cookie cutter, you know, everything that they did at A in, into company B. And like you said, some things work and some things don't work. Absolutely. Yeah. Is it where there, you know, now that you've done it a number of times, is that, are there a number of areas where you're a lot more cautious? Like you talked about watch, looking at the processes and profiles of the people and the culture and how they get things done. Are there now areas where you say, I'm going to go into this area and I'm going to take my time to learn? What are, what are some of those areas where you really are cautious about? No, it's a great question. Um, I break it down. Yeah, I typically break it down into three areas. First is kind of how how the business runs operation, operational command of the business. Right, what's that executive dashboard that's uh, you know measuring and metricing, you know, key elements of the business. Uh, And as we all know, we're in this business. Pipe generation and pipeline is it trumps everything else. So, how are you building pipeline? How are you doing in the digital and social? How are you doing with sales-generated pipeline? How are the BDRs doing? And just see how they've set up their business, right? Their CRM system. Maybe they've, you know, augmented that with Clary or Dawn, you know, and, and some other tools. Um, and what methodology, right? Are they using Medic or Medpick, right? Which many, many companies use. Are they using gap selling? You know, trying to figure out more from user profile, but get an appreciation of what they're doing um, and not doing. Then the second part of the ops piece is productivity, right? Trying to just understand how they're measuring productivity of their sales team, what how they've metric the pipeline for the sales team, and finding those leading indicators that, that someone's struggling, you know, well before you know, they hand in their resignation or, you know, choose to go down a different path. So I don't, I don't think you hire anybody that doesn't want to be successful. Your job as a leader to help them understand when they're potentially going off track, prove enablement, 
give them some one-on-one time, give them some coaching. So let's, let me unpack some of that stuff. Let's go down the road of, you know, you talked about business operations and the importance of tracking different metrics. So there's metrics that you track during the quarter. And then there's some that you now look at once the quarter's finished and say, you know, how did we do? Can you give us an idea of some of those metrics that you track during the quarter and then some of the ones you review after the quarter? Yeah. And, and also, you know, how do you manage three quarters out, right? To see the pipeline you're building and, you know, so in quarter and out quarter pipeline. Yeah, that's really big for people that what Chris is really alluding to is if you have a really long sales cycle, you're not really just looking at next quarter, you know, unless you have a, a sales cycle that's a month or something. But when you have sales cycles that are six to nine months, you have to be looking pretty far out. One, 100%. Um, when I look at metricing the business up front, you know, from an, from an ops perspective, uh, it also comes with an operational cadence, right? You don't want to be so internally focused, you know, allow your teams to go out there and, you know, create pipeline, close the deals that are in there for the quarter. But what you do expect is a level of accountability um, at, at every level. First line sales manager, second line sales manager, third line sales manager. And you can't really drive that unless you're accountable down to, you know, the day, the week, the month, right? So someone says something's got to close, you know, the week of the 12th. And it doesn't close the week of the 12th. Why would you have any level of confidence that the next date they put on there is actually right. achievable, right? Uh, either they don't understand the process, their champion's not strong enough, budget's not there, but those are typically some leading indicators that um, folks have some happy ears and are expecting things to happen, timelines that, you know, aren't realistic. Um, pipe gen within the quarter, you know, absolutely critical. Uh, activity within the board. How many sales calls? How many of those are converting to, you know, sales stage one or two? You know, you're building the pipe for future success, um, both in quarter and out quarter. And then for sales management, there's a, you know, an additional set of reporting that you're looking at, which kind of goes in quarter, out quarter, and, um, you know, making sure that they, understand they need to build a sustainable business long term and in metric the business the right way. So when you close the quarter and you see that productivity either went up or went down, how do you put your finger on, you know, how do you start to break it down to figure out, okay, what did we do right or what what did we do wrong and need to self need to correct, you know, for the next quarter if productivity had dropped? Yeah. Um I think you you know, what I try and do is I look at you know, did they have to be perfect in closing their pipeline, right? Were they overestimating the, the things that come up and, and the curveballs that they get during the course of the quarter? Um, and are the productivity expectations you have of your, you know, first, your sales team, your first line managers and your area leaders consistent with the kind of pipeline coverage they need? So I usually try and look at productivity at the first line level as maybe the last thing, the first thing is, do I have the pipe at every level to actually make the sales team, you know, successful in each quarter? And, and you find in quarter, you know, 50, 60% of the team make their goal in quarter and the other ones don't. And over the course of the year, it's 65 to 70%. Yeah. Yeah. And now let's go to... um 
hiring issues, like when you see that a rep failed, what, like what, how do you start to break down why they failed? Was it because they you hired the wrong person? Was it because you gave them to the wrong leader or because you couldn't train them, you couldn't develop them or, or some other reason? How do you typically break that down to figure out, did we really lose a good person here or was this person, did we just make a bad hire? Yeah. So, you know, I look for managers to really be given coaching and, you know, providing feedback to their teams on a, on a daily basis. This isn't a once a quarter or once a half performance review. You know, they need to be, first line managers need to be spending time, right? They have to hire, right? Retain, train, inspire, teach. Um, so if I usually find a first, you know, salesperson isn't successful, one of those things went wrong, right? They, they didn't hire someone with the right workout. So let, let's take maybe a step back. What do I look for? Workout. Okay, let's do that. Right. Someone who just wants to outwork everyone because they've got something to prove. It's how they were raised. It's their background. Um, I know for me, I'm not always the smartest guy in the room. Most of the time I'm not. So I just got to work harder than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's that, coachability and, you know, ability to absorb and to learn. So what what you try to look for is what was it in this, you know, rep that I hired that, you know, didn't, that I didn't see during the hiring process that perhaps their ability to grasp new concepts. Um, And, you know, you start to build out a profile of what you're looking for, you know, for the reps in, in some companies where you have our, a BDR to ISR to field kind of progression, you've got some of those metrics, right? They've been successful at the first two steps. You know, you're led to believe they can be successful at the third. It's the external hires that are hard. Um, even those, you look for a previous track record, right? Yeah. If they weren't successful in their previous jobs, um, what was it that, you know, made you believe they were going to be successful here? And, and sales managers, Sometimes they're so desperate to hire, like they potentially bring someone in and they think is on the facts and they think they can coach them up. And what you lose is a year in productivity. Yeah, I think a lot of times people think that they can change the person, right? I think yes. you, the person has certain character traits and you're probably not going to change them. Like I used to say to people, if their mother or father couldn't change by the time they're 18, you're not going to change them. So, yeah, I use this thing. Well, you might well, be, someone, you're smart enough. You might be able to give them knowledge if they're, if they're hungry enough. As you said, you know, they're persistent. You might be able to, you know, help them develop skills, but you're not going to change their character. That's not going to happen. You're not going to make them more intelligent. You're not going to, you know, <laughs> kick them out of bed at five o'clock in the morning if they're not driven. So those yeah, things, you're not changing that. Right. As they say, you, you don't. You're not born a mule and die a racehorse, right? I mean, you are, you are who you are. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And like you said, for some of us, we have to, we may not be the smartest people in the room, but we certainly have to work hard. And that's what I call like a PhD, persistence, heart and desire. You just have to give it everything you got. And if you have that type of persistence, you can persist through, you know, Look, if you're smart enough, you can actually pick up some knowledge and enter skills, things that you have to, you know, that are repetitive and, and it takes repetition to learn them. You know, that's all about being persistent. Yeah. And, and it's also hiring the right profile for the right role. 
right? And if you're looking for someone to drive an activity-based space, you don't hire a hunter, right? Or a farmer, rather, right? And if you have someone that's been exceptional at the activity-based space, right? A deal every week, you know, several deals a week, you might not see their success in an enterprise cell where it's, you know, five to seven to nine months. So, you know, you also got to take a look at, is this person's skills transferable? Or did you put them in a situation that they probably want, weren't going to be successful? Yeah. And it can change. Like, you know, if you t- have to take somebody that's been into a really big company for a long period of time and you stick them in a really scrappy startup and now they have to scrounge for resources and they never had to do that type of stuff before. A lot of times, to your point, you're putting them in a spot where they're probably not going to be successful. I've also seen it where you do hire somebody that's right at in, in the current year. And let's say your company is, you know, 50 million bucks, but Two years later, you $200 million. You went 50 to 100, 100 to 200. And it's a whole different company now. You know, yeah. the customers have changed. The messaging has changed. Who you sell to has changed. Competition has changed. The types of skills you have to have has changed. And a lot of people just don't adapt. So they were a good hire two years ago. And then you look at them now and you think, oh, person's a dinosaur. They haven't changed at all. You know, they're just not coachable and not adaptable too. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, as a, as a CRO or as a leader, two, two of the most important hires you can make is your, you know, business ops. So go to market strategy and ops and enable it. Right. You right. can get those two right. You metric the business properly and you build the right training to, you know, coach people up and, and keep, put them at least in a position to be successful. Yeah. I usually think it's, I'm, I'm with you. I think it's pretty simple. One, if you hire really good people, and then when you, you onboard them the right way, so you can, you know, decrease the ramp time and then you train them and develop them to increase their productivity and you give them to good leaders, you're probably not going to churn them either. They're probably not going to leave. So absolutely. Yeah. And all of that sounds so simple, but as you know, there's a lot of work that goes into doing that the right way. And you got to stick to the process, right? You, you can't, you can't cheat and you can't make it go faster times at times than, than you. Want it to go, right? So if you stick with it over time, you'll see the success. Yeah, I think what you're referring to there, um, for people that have sat in like Chris Riley's seat or any other C-level suite, you think that you can turn things around, let's say in nine months and you figure out then, oh my gosh, this is never going to happen in nine months. It's going to take like five quarters before this is really going to turn around. Things actually, when you're dealing with people, don't happen as quickly as you'd really like them to happen. As much as you try, you can't, like you said, you can't short circuit the process. Yeah. So people, if the sales force is turning over that quickly, right? You've got a high level of attrition. People aren't hitting their productivity numbers. Um, To the managers out there, don't, don't jump into those opportunities without doing a lot of due diligence. You know, that expression, the product matters, really matters, right? These people were successful one place and not successful at the company they're at. You know, there might be some reasons behind it. So really poke into the product and the company you may be going to, just ask some questions. How many people are hitting goal, right? How many folks, you know, achieved 100% for the year? Can I actually make my income? Um, So... You could have great people and a great leader if the product isn't the right 
product market fit, you know, there's more challenges to being successful. 100%. 100%. Hey, Chris, so when you think about you going up through the leadership ranks, everything from, you know, rep all the way up to, you know, your position today as, as the world, the president, what did you need to learn? What's the biggest thing when you look back? Like, what did you need to learn about Chris Riley? Um, you know, kind of a self-assessment, right? Looking at your, you know, EQ and trying to figure out if you weren't in the room, someone asked the question, you know, who is Chris Riley? Would they say the things that you'd want them to say? Right? Uh-huh. Leads from the front, hard work ethic, smart, right? A fair leader, but an accountable leader, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think at times we, we have a view of ourselves that might not be reality. So first thing you got to do is know who you are and, and how people perceive you. At least, at least for me, I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah. How did you figure that out? Uh, you know, I did some Spencer Stewart, you know, third party, like, hey, go get, give me a 360 on myself. And sometimes you don't like the feedback, right? Yeah. They're little, they're little things you can change. Um, but you don't realize perhaps, you know, how you're being perceived by the team. Yeah. And there's a lot of checking as a leader. There's a lot of checking in with yourself. There's a lot of looking in the mirror. Yeah. And, and a lot of self-correction. Yeah. And the other part, John, is, you know, what I learned early on, and I, this is a learned skill, you need a coach, you need a mentor, and you need a godfather. And Say that one thing. more time. You need a coach, a mentor, and a, mentor, a godfather. And right? tell us what you mean by the three of them. Well, a mentor is somebody you can, you know, speak openly without, you know, fear of, you know, someone in, your, in the leadership role, you know, casting judgment or, you know, you can kind of say, hey, listen, I don't know what the heck I'm doing and I feel like I'm failing. You know, what's some advice you can give me? Um, so pick that mentor very carefully because um, you want someone that will give you honest feedback and help you grow as a professional. Um, a coach is someone who internally, you know, can show you what best practice looks like, right? Show you what's, what's helping make them successful. Or if it's a manager, right? What are the attributes and strengths of, you know, the most successful people within the organization? And listen and be curious and try and get the details so you can approve. And a godfather is if you're doing all those things right, when you're not in the room, who's advocating for you for that promotion? Ah. Right. Who is, who is saying, listen, if we're looking for someone in the right role, right? Who's have a proven track record of success. Right. I know John McMahon's going to be the guy to recommend me for that role. Me. Um, and I think some people just think, hey, if I just perform well, everyone's going to know. Um, yeah. So build out your network and, and find, at least for me, find those three roles and, and, choose them carefully and, and nurture them. And a mentor, is a mentor typically inside the company or outside the company? Coaches, it sounds like your coach is inside the company and the mentor is outside the company. It, it can be either, right? Okay. If it's inside the company, it has to be someone you really trust. Yeah. Uh, but, but it can be either. And the godfather is obviously in the company. In the company. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yes. Now, what did you need? That's what you had to learn about you. Wouldn't you have to learn about other people? Um, 
you know, the hardest thing for me to assess at times or early in the career was, you know, work ethic and aptitude. And then the third one, which you learn very quickly is coachability, right? So do they have the work ethic? Do they take feedback well? And do they have the technical acumen to learn something new and then articulate the value prop late succinctly and clearly to customers and prospects? And I think that's re- that part's really hard because I've been in positions where people have said to me, like, you have to get rid of XYZ rep. And I've thought, no, I'm not getting rid of them. Whereas some people listening to this would think, no, McMahon gets rid of people, you know, whenever he wants. But it was actually not true because I think about it all the time. So I'll give you an example. There was a guy on one company that I worked in where they said, you know, you got to get rid of this person. Never sold anything for six months. Mm -hmm. Didn't sell anything for nine months. Didn't sell anything for a year. Now the chairman of the board and the CEO is telling me, you got to get rid of this person. I'm like, I'm not getting rid of them. Why are you not getting rid of them? Because every time I, I kind of invested myself in the person, every time I would make sales calls with them or see them in a QBR and get up and do presentations, I could see the incremental jump in their skill set and the knowledge that they had learned. And I could see them gaining confidence. And then by the end of the fifth quarter, the person sold two deals over a million, one for one, one and one point one and one for one point three. So I knew I made the right decision. Now, if you're not seeing those that true incremental jump in their knowledge and their skill set, and they're just flatlining, you know, then yeah, maybe it's time to get rid of them, but and ask them to go to do another job. But if you're seeing that and you're still feeling pressure to get rid of somebody, I think you got to question whether or not you you know, because people learn at different speeds. You got to question whether or not you're going to get rid of somebody that's about to land a couple million dollar deals right. and then go find somebody else. It's going to take six to nine months to ramp and they're just the same person, but in a different body with a different name. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know how you've done it, John, but like performance management is a really hard thing to do because you have those core cases and unique situations. How, how did you discern between someone that just was afraid to do real make difficult decisions as a first line manager um, versus someone that might have acted too quickly. Mm. I think that's, that's getting to know your leader and getting to know the person that they're managing and seeing if there's, they're, they're really investing in that, in that sales rep. A lot of times, um, what I find, especially with first line managers, is you ask them, like, what is Joe or Sally? What are they doing? Why are they not making it? And they give you these general answers, like, they don't have enough grit or, uh, you know, they're just not motivated enough. And I, and I say, well, what does that mean? Like, give me an example. Like, sh- tell me what you mean by grit and tell me why they don't have grit. The person's been coming here for a year. And they haven't sold anything and they're living on their base. It would be a lot easier to go someplace else. What do you mean they don't have grit? And they're learning the, I can see them learning the product. What do you mean by that? And, and I find that that's where second and third line managers need to jump in and help those first line managers who have a really hard time dissecting exactly what's going wrong with the person that they're trying to lead. 
So, and I hate those general answers. I like to, I like it to be very specific that I can see, oh yeah, okay, they're having real trouble with that. Now, question is, can we help them get over that? If you've been trying to do that and you can't, then it might be time for, you know, a different type of decision. Yeah. And how, how do you set the expectation where those first and second line managers, when you're maybe running the, the Americas or, or the CRO, where it looked like you might be micromanaging, right? But if you set expectations that, you know, I want to get involved in, you know, helping folks that aren't, you know, providing those leading indicators for success. But micromanaging is something none of us want to do. How did, how did you manage through that? I don't think it's micromanagement. I think if somebody's going to get rid of a rep to, for, and they're telling you, well, you want to get rid of Joe or Sally, the, first, the question is why? How come? So I used to say, okay, you're going to have to take responsibility somehow, some way, because you hired the person, you were in charge of training and developing them, and you were in charge of leading them. So you have to tell me where you failed. You fail at hiring, fail at training and developing, fail at leading. Because you got to take responsibility for it. It can't just be that this person's no good because then we're not learning anything about how we're hiring people, training and developing people and leading people. We did something wrong. We have to take ownership, right? Yeah. And I think when you, when you make them look through that filter, that changes things. The second thing is, in, if you're in a growth company is growing, you know, 70% to 100% a year. And you, they all know that there's going to be X amount of new second line managers and Y amount of new, like, you know, VPs or third line managers next year. I used to say, look, the only way I'm going to promote you is if you can prove that you've been able to hire somebody and develop somebody to take your spot. If you can't do that, why would I ever take you to the next level? So now they put another filter on that says, whoa, whoever I hire here better be able to, I better be able to train them, develop them so they could take my spot. Otherwise, I'm not going anywhere. Exactly. I, I, and that doesn't cost me anything. That. I, yeah, it's absolutely. not micromanaging. I'm changing their filter. Yeah. That makes sense? A hundred percent. Yeah. If you can't, you know, train up your backfill, it's going to be difficult to move you out of that role. Yeah, right. Because why would I promote the person that can't develop, can't hire and can't develop and can't lead? Now I'm the, I'm taking on bigger problems eventually for myself as the, as the CRO. Exactly. Exactly. What about prioritizing? Like you've jumped into all these different roles and you have to prioritize and manage your time. What did you have to learn there? What, what would you tell people is a, a real lesson that Chris Riley had to learn in? in about prioritizing and time management. Because everybody, you're the, you know, you run in, you're the president of Worldwide Operations. Everybody wants a piece of Chris Riley. Everybody. How do you manage it? Uh, well, what trumps everything is creating pipeline, right? And if you kind of look at it through that filter to choose one of the words you took before, all, you, all the discussions you're having with marketing, you know, is around what is our marketing doing to help drive demand? If you're looking at it through operations, how are we metricing the business? How are we aligning territories to help put ourselves in a position to optimize our pipeline? And then you just, you're, you're very candid and open with the team to understand what are the things that are impact their ability to kind of do their job, 
right? Is it the tools? Is it the training? Is it, you know, we, we, we aren't organized in our operational cadence. So we don't have enough time in front of customers and either building pipeline or closing. Pipeline. So if I look at it through the filter of, you know, how do I drive pipe? If you come up with a lot of the reasons why maybe you're not driving, right? And that, that's typically cross-functional. Yeah. And that's, that's your job is removing those obstacles, running interference, right? Get rid of yeah. that to make people more productive. Right. Yeah. Now for you, because you, I'm going to turn this around on you and not make it about micromanagement, but as you got into the VP levels, the C levels, the president level, how do you stay in touch with what's going on with the reps? Like I used to call it the street, like what's going on in the street? Like I'm in this big building here, there's stuff going on in the street. I got to know what's going on in the street to really be able to affect the productivity of the sales rep. So how do, how do you stay in touch with what's going on with the reps? No, great question. I think, um, as I mentioned before, I think one of the most important hires is that go-to-market strategy, biz ops role. So if you, if you metric the business properly and you've got the right expectation set with the team, it can free you up to actually get on the field. And I'm a big believer in leading from the front, you know, leading with customers, meeting with partners, spending time with the sales team or the sales management team, both during and after work hours. And, and just learning from them what's impacting their ability to be successful, learning from customers, you know, is our value prop resonating? Are they seeing what they expect to do out of our, out of our product or our teams as engaged as you'd like them to be? So you get such valuable information, um, you know, when you're out in the field leading from the front. Yeah, I agree. That's tiring. Shield, right. You know, yeah. And you get to know the reps, you get to know what's really driving them. You get them to loosen up a little when yeah. they're in the car with you. And then eventually they let go and they're telling you all the things that's going on. And you know, you're not hearing it just from the one rep. They're almost like a microphone or a megaphone for everyone else in the, in the field. Yeah. And I don't know about you, John, but I think, you know, for me, that's also where you build trust with the field. Right. So as a leader, the field has to say, hey, my leader cares about me. They care about making me successful. They're truly interested in what's keeping me from being my best self. And if you then go back and fix just a few things, um, you know, the, the, the loyalty and the trust just goes through the roof. And if you got a team that trusts you, they'll work harder. They'll break down walls. They don't want to let you down because they know you're fighting for them. Yeah, I think it also shows up in training. Like if you're not in touch with them and you're training them on like five different things, they're all sitting in the audience saying, well, why are they training us on this? Which is three or four other issues that are more important. But when you're hitting right on the issues that they face every day, that's when they know, okay, I got a leader that really understands what we're going through. Yeah. And, and John, I'll turn it around and ask you, you've been CRO five times. Most every one of them has been incredibly successful. You probably walked into some pretty shitty situations uh, and turned lemons into lemonade. Uh, but you walked into a few where you were the, you know, the accelerant, right? To help grow faster. When you walked into those shitty situations, what, what, what was it you did and how quickly to fix it? Well, when I, when you walk in, I think, um, 
no matter how big the organization is, I think it's divided into three groups. In my experience, there's a group that no matter what you say, they like the old leader. They like the way things used to be done and they don't want to have any part of you. Yeah. And then there's another s- smaller group that is dying to new leadership, dying to win. They're, those are the type of people that usually come just to, to play as hard as they can. And then there's a group in the middle that's the group you have to win over the most because the group that wants to win is already out making sales calls. They, they're, and they're going to do whatever you ask them to do. Mm-hmm. But the group in the middle is being talked to by the group that doesn't want any part of you. So they're trying to like, you know, almost put like seeds of doubt about this new leader to the biggest group in the middle. So what you have to do is you have to find a way to tell them like, here's, here's how we're going to, you know, onboard people. Here's who we're going to hire. Here's how we're going to onboard. Here's the types of things that we're going to train on. And that's all based upon not again, cookie cutter, but having done enough homework to understand what they need to be trained on and getting some wins as quickly as you can. And then letting the people promote the wins. And then that group in the middle starts to come over and rewarding those wins, sometimes with a little bit of extra, maybe stock options or extra commissions or some sort of reward for that. And then the people on the other, on the far end start to disappear on their own. Or they just don't make it and you got to let them go anyway. And then the big group in the middle moves over. And now you start to also understand the types of people that you have to hire, which you were talking about earlier, as far as, you know, this is the persona we call on. Here's the use cases. Here's type the size of the companies. Here's the messaging. Here's the ROIs that we have to do. These are the types of people that I need with these, these skills, this knowledge, and then the characteristics that you discussed. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, but, but really, at the end of the day, you got to get those wins and you got to get those wins fast. And you have to be involved in helping those people get those wins. But then you don't talk about it. You let them talk about it. And celebrate it. Yep. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Big. And then it's by rewarding them extra commissions or extra stock and putting them in front of the whole group and saying, look at what this person did. You are already bringing that group in the middle over. No, absolutely. Nope. Terribly agree. Yeah. When you think about some of the leaders that you've seen in your career, what are some of the top characteristics of like the best leaders that you've seen? Yeah. You have to pick like two or three even. Yeah. So they're, they're able to build trust very, very quickly. Right. So I think the, the sales organization looks at them and says, I'll be more successful with that person in charge than I would have were they not in charge? So they really trust the, the leader that can help bring them to the, the promised land, so to speak. Yeah. File, you know, good operational cadence, right? They're running at the business, but with a plan that, you know, metrics the business properly. They're looking at in quarter and out quarter. Um, they've got command of the business. Uh, and then the third one we just kind of talked about, they get a lot of windshield current, right? They, they're out with the reps. They're out in front of customers. Um, they spend a lot of time training and developing talent. Uh, and, and there's a few things I look at, right? There's the know me, trust me, like me, buy from me. So if, if someone knows you and likes you and trusts you, they got to buy from you. Right. 
And it, it's true with management. If someone knows you, likes you, and trusts you, they got to want to work for you because they believe you can make them more successful. So I think that's the biggest thing you have to do as a leader is put the right management team in place. And, and oftentimes the rest kind of falls in order. Yeah. And is it the same with the flip side of the leaders you've seen that have failed? You know, what were they missing? Is it exactly the opposite? It's not exactly the opposite, but a lot of those qualities just, just weren't there. Maybe they didn't manage the business out quarter, right? So they looked like a star one day and the next quarter they weren't performing. And then the next quarter they were great. And it's that level of consistency. Um, but ultimately back to your point, if they, if they fail, that's on me, right? Um, I either got to move them out or I got to help them, you know, in the areas where they're not maybe strong and finding someone strong in all those areas. You know, sometimes it's hard, right? Take yeah. two out of the three um, or three out of the four. That's, that's kind of what you, what you end up doing. Yeah. I think for the people that I've seen that have failed at all different levels, it's about recruiting. Like they, they just hire the wrong team. Then once you hire the wrong team, by the time you figure out that you have a problem, the problem's already got you and it might be too late to now turn it around. And then yeah. I also find that they're just not good listeners. They're not really listening to what their people are telling them. They're not really, you know, in the moment with their people, whether it's the windshield time you talked about or it's on sales calls or it's listening to feedback that they get from their people. They're just not good listeners. Um, and then they have a lack of uh, like a team mentality. It's more about them. They're almost yep. more narcissistic than they are about the team first, you know, and the individual second, you know? Yeah. And over time, you kind of see that coaching tree, like who, what system did they grow up in? Where do they achieve success? Um, like you probably some of your proudest moments, I know mine are, to see someone that used to work for me who was coachable, who did lesson, who did adopt system in the process and believed in it, go on and achieve great success. I mean, yeah, not, nothing, nothing better than that. 100%. Yeah. Let's talk about the sales process quickly. Everybody loves to talk about that. When you think about the sales process, what do you think is the most critical stage or step in a stage of the sales process? Um, making sure like, you know, why us, why now, why anything? Um, you know, do, do we really have a compelling value prop that, you know, has a strong ROI? And if they didn't move forward, you know, there'd be some pretty significant pain. Yeah. So, now, do you drive, do you people at Data Robot, do you want them to go get an ROI? It, do it a cost depends. justification. Yeah. Yeah. It depends. I mean, it's, it's every company is a little bit different and sometimes building that ROI is easy and sometimes it's a little harder. Um, but you can turn it around to the customer, you know, where it's like when I just look at it this way. If a, if a proposal is going up to the CFO for signature and I didn't help provide the input, then I question whether or not the value prop is being you know, properly stated. So I'd rather give the customer the ROI and let them white label it or just extract the table and put it into his or her presentation. And, and at least I know my reason 
that I worked on my champion way to do this deal and do it with me and do it now is making its way to the CFO. Yeah, because these days, all CFOs, especially if it's a pretty big deal, are asking, you know, do we have to have this to, to one of your points? Why do we have to have it now? And then if it's a million dollars or 300,000, why do we have to do 300,000? Why can't we do 150 or if it's a million, why can't we do half a million? If you really need it and you really need it now, then they ask, well, why do I have to do so much? So to your point, if you don't, if you're not involved in the ROI and it's not your reasoning along with your strong champion, chances are it's going to get shot down. Yeah. And you can have a great champion, but that champion may just like you and want to help you and bring something forward. But the CFO is going to be the block. Yeah. Well, that's their job, right? Yes. And that's why yeah. you need a strong champion it has to convince them. Yes, I have to have it. Here's the pain. I have to have it now. Here's why every day we, we, Wait, it's going to cost us more money. And here's why I need this much, right? Well, what do you believe the most important step is? I think you got to get a champion. If you don't get a champion and a true champion, a lot of people think that they have a champion, they have a coach. I'd say that's the biggest mistake in sales. Yeah. But, and, and to get a champion, you have to do really great discovery up front, right? You have to come in with, by having done homework on that customer and understand their use case and understand who you're talking to and how they're measured and make sure that you've done a lot of diligence on that company so that when you're coming in, you've already differentiated yourself. You know what their problem is and you know how your product aligns specifically to their pain points and can solve each and every one of those pain points. And if you do that right and you come into that first meeting not wondering what that is, but coming in with a viewpoint then I think you're going to really have a, a great demo that you can actually quantify for each differentiator that you have that solves their pain points. How much does that actually cost you guys today? How much is that? And wait until you get an answer before you move to the next one. Because then it's, it's not a demo of like, let me show you everything about Data Robot can do, but it's a specific demo because you've done your homework walking in the door. So you've eliminated a lot of steps in the process. And in that process, you're going to find a champion. And when you're asking those questions, because you come in with a viewpoint, if there's five or six people in the room, only one or two of them are probably going to be able to give you the answer. So you already smoked out that the other three or four don't really matter that much in this process. And there's one or two over here that I'm going to have to spend my time with because they could be my potential champions. Yeah. You know? The other thing I found is like success begets success. If you have a strong champion, there's no better sell than a customer selling another customer. Right? Oh, so yeah. you then turn your champion into a reference who's who you're using all the time to help convince another customer, you know, that, that they should move forward or, or share with them their ROI. And there's, there's lots you can learn from your champion, but, you know, customer selling customers is, is pretty special. Yeah, no doubt. All right. You walked into this new company, Data Robot, or you walked into the last one and you, it's the beginning of the quarter and you need to forecast the number for the quarter. You don't know any of these people yet. You know, what information or indicators are you starting to look for to say, this is the way in which I'm going to try to put this forecast together for the CEO for the quarter? Yeah. Um, that's a hard one. <laughs> but I said, but I said, yeah, but the first is you just, 
you know, you got to look at the numbers, right? And you got to look at conversion rates. The math typically doesn't lie. So if you've got a $20 million pipe and you usually close, you know, 40% of that, you know, it's, it's 8 million. Yeah. I'd probably give a number six because I want to make sure you, you can't miss that number because it's your credibility on the line. Um, and you got a couple quarters to do that, you know, before it's, it's kind of your number with your pipe and your team. Right. Right. So you, you just got to use the bath. You know, if you get something better than that, great. Um, maybe there's a couple of things you can do to increase close rates a little bit. Um, but I also think that helps you understand what's, what's the cause of not having a higher conviction. Like, um, you also look at, at least for me, you know, I'm new. I come in, I see what the pipe looks like. I want to see what it looks like late stage versus early stage. Right. What is, what is late stage and what's our conversion rate there versus conversion rate of overall pipe? Yeah. Um, so, you know, absolutely important for me to kind of look at, look at that and then look at, depending upon the company, is it a real velocity based business where there's thousands of deals and, and you're looking at, you know, kind of a percentage of those coming in or if it's a mix, right? It's, 30 or 60%, maybe 70% velocity, and then 30 to 40% large deals. But the large deals make up 70% of the revenue. You got to dig in and and figure out, you know, what could possibly go wrong in these large deals? And and where where are you really in the close cycle on those deals? Back to your point, right? Do Do you have a strong champion? Do you have a strong ROI? Is this person going to advocate? Do you know the why now, why any? Um, so I think th- there's a few of those things I've typically looked at, um, you know, to try and make that judgment. Yeah, I think if you're brand new, you can look at uh, what was the productivity of the Salesforce last quarter and the prior quarters. It's probably just because you showed up that first quarter doesn't mean it's actually going to jump much. Yeah. You know? Then you look at that conversion rate. I think you can also look at you know, in the past couple quarters, how many deals that came in were new and how many that came in were existing customers? And what were those sizes of those deals? Now, let me look at the forecasts and those conversion rates you talked about and how many are new and how many are existing. And I'm, pro- and I'm probably going to get about the same average deal size. So I can do that and cut it that way also. And then, you know, like you said, you go around and also ask for the forecast from your different leaders. But the problem with that is you don't know who the sandbaggers are yet. And you don't know who, who typically has rose colored glasses. So. And especially today, it's hard. I mean, I, I don't think any company's been immune to, and I'll just make up a number, right? We had a hundred salespeople to start the year. Things looked a little rocky. We went down to 80. Now we're going to get out to 60. The number hasn't changed dramatically. So. You know, you go to 100 to 60, you got to have those 60 do, you know, the work of what the 100 would do. So the yield, you know, productivity per rep goes up. Yeah. And how realistic is that? So, you know, there's that plausibility matrix as well that you need to be, you know, in sync with, with the CFO. I think that's the harsh reality. What you just outlined is a harsh reality for brand new CROs. They start to realize all I really have is headcount 
and productivity. Those are my only two knobs that I can turn. The headcount knob I can't turn unless the CEO gives me more heads. The productivity knob is the only one that I can actually turn. And, you know, that's based upon, again, what we were talking about. Who did I hire? How am I onboarding them, training them, developing them, giving them the right leaders? And if I'm not doing those things, I'm not going to have a big effect on their productivity. And that's all they control. That's all you control. That's it. No. Yeah. Hey, the one last reality, stark reality of our job. <laughs> yeah, there's nowhere else to turn. And you control it all. So you have to do it. Hey, one one more question. You know, we have a we have a number of listeners that are in, let's say, the 25 to 40-year-old range, and they probably haven't seen a tough economy like they're seeing right now. Do you have any advice for, you know, leaders or salespeople who may be maneuvering through this sluggish economy right now on how to get, do better and, you know, close in business? Yeah, I mean, the first is you can focus on the things that are wrong, or you can just get out there and figure out a way to get things done. Um, and while the future may be scary, even if you get to 80% of your number, right, your other teammates might be getting to 40%. So work harder, figure out how to get deals done, ask for help, right? Your manager is there to help. And, you know, one of the greatest human qualities we have is when asked for help, people usually give it. Yeah. Um, the, the, another area is ask for executive support, right? Most, um, most executives want to get in and help, not tell you all the things that are wrong with the sales campaign that you've mounted, right? And sometimes eagle to eagle works, right? Getting CFO to CFO or, you know, CIO to, you know, if it's a small company, your CEO. So, you know, if you're struggling, work on the pipe that you do have. Where, where is there an opportunity for executive touch points? Yeah, and always go back to basics, right? Just work hard, generate your pipe, follow the process, you know, don't have happy years and, and just keep grinding. And I Companies like grinding. still going to spend money. They're still spending money just because it's a tough economy. It doesn't mean that they, they want to spend money. But what I think is happening is you're not competing only against your competition. You're competing against all the people, all the products and services that a CFO is looking at before he buys. So how compelling, if you're not doing to our earlier point, doing your homework, getting a champion, you know, building a cost justification, getting it to the highest levels of the organization, then you simply don't have a spokesperson when they're making those types of decisions, but they're spending money. I used to say they're not going down to the lobby to chop up uh, like the furniture for uh, firewood. They'd still spend money. Absolutely. Yeah, Only the good salespeople are getting it. What's that? Yeah. You got to yeah. make sure it's going to you. Exactly, Chris Riley. Well, man, thank you so much. You really appreciate it. it awesome. Thank you, John. I listen, I listen to your podcast and I know you personally and, and it's an honor and a you know, privilege to be on and hopefully we'll get, uh, we'll get together soon. You got it. Thanks, Chris. And thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.